Well, good morning, my church. Wow, after all that music, all you can do is say wow, right? I said a lot of times before that, uh, you know, the, the difference that good music makes for those who are bringing the messages uh, is like a football analogy. Uh, if it's bad music, then it's uh, going to be like fourth and long. And if it's good music, it's like first and goal. And today I feel like I'm on the one-inch line, first and goal, and if I don't get to push it into the end zone, it's just going to be my fault, isn't it? So anyway, we'll pray that the Lord will help me uh, do that. And uh, I am amazed at these guys' talents and their abilities and their love for the Lord, and I appreciate uh, their passion uh, and their music. Christy's always very kind when she introduces uh, me. Uh, some of you might remember uh, some time ago she introduced me one time as the wise guy. Do y'all remember that? So I've, I've been known since then as the wise guy, but uh, I do appreciate her kind words. And I love Jeff, and uh, he is away with his kids uh, this morning, and uh, I love the opportunities I get to speak for him. It's been quite a while, so for some of you that don't know me, my name's Mike, and uh, Jeff uh, is always very trusting, too. I said, well, Jeff, what would you like for me to speak on on Sunday? He says, well, I'll tell you what I have. He says, but then it's up to you. He says, uh, it's holiday hangover. We're going to talk about the holiday hangover. He says, and you take that in whatever direction you want to go, okay? I said, wow, okay. Well, we'll take it in whatever direction I want to go then. And so uh, I, I love the trust that Jeff places in me. So uh, hopefully uh, it won't uh, come back to, to hurt me today. But here's what I'm going to do with you today with this subject called the holiday hangover. Uh, there's so many ways we could go with this. He's exactly right when he told me that. And so I picked one of the most trusted sites and resources that any pastor could go to to find a definition and some information that would be theologically sound and just doctrinally pure. And so I went to the Urban Dictionary. Anybody ever gone to? <laughs> Y'all are scared now. Anybody ever go to the Urban Dictionary for your definitions of things? Well, I think it's going to be up on the screen. Here's what the Urban Dictionary says about the holiday hangover. You ready for this? It's that terrible feeling that you get the day that you have to go back to work after more than two days off due to the holidays. And then another portion of the definition says it's that feeling of depression when the holiday season has passed and you have to go back to work or school. Let me say something that's going to bless you today based on that definition. You get to go back to work tomorrow. How many of you, how many of you are still off tomorrow? Raise your hand. Okay, your hangover is going to last a little longer or you don't, uh, you, know, you don't have to go back yet. But you know what? When you think about that definition, this is where I'm going to go with this today. It's that, it's that dreaded feeling of going back to work. You know, Christmas couldn't have fallen on a better day really this year than it did this year. You know, you have Christmas Eve. A lot of you may have taken Christmas Eve off, Christmas Day off, Saturday, today. You had a four-day weekend. But you know what? This is something that happens to us almost literally every week. Okay, because when the weekend comes, we enjoy the weekend so much, and about the time Sunday afternoon rolls around, you've come to church, uh, you've gone and you've had something to eat, all of a sudden it hits you, wait a minute, I've got to go back to work tomorrow. You know, life is no longer good. Have you ever heard that phrase, why is Friday so far away from Mondays, but Mondays are so close to Fridays? You know what I'm saying? That's what we feel like almost every week because it's like, wow, shouldn't the weekend have lasted just a little bit longer? I sure would have loved to get a little bit more done uh, and to enjoy a little bit more time, but now I have to go back to work again. It's that dreaded work. It's that four-letter word that nobody likes to talk about. 
obviously, for those of you who know me, you know that the ministry that I'm involved in on a daily basis is in the workplace, okay? And so uh, when I saw that Urban Dictionary definition, I said, wow, I got, I got to speak on this then. I got to share this because, you know, as I, as I deal in the workplace every day, the number one complaint I hear every day is at some level, okay, I don't like my job, okay? Now, I don't want you to give me a testimony by raised hands, so keep, keep your uh, hands underneath your legs or something, but how many of you don't like your jobs today? It's a problem. Did you know that statistics tell us that 80% of people at some level are dissatisfied with their jobs? Uh, for some reason, it's, it's a place that we don't like to go. There are things there that we don't like to do. There are people there possibly, this is why I don't want you to raise your hand, that we don't want to see, uh, we don't want to hear from, or those kinds of things. At some level, a va the vast majority of, of us we are dissatisfied with the jobs that we have. 25% of people say it's the main source of stress in their lives. 40% of people say that it is extremely or very stressful and places a lot of burdens on them. And here's the number that will really bless you or will make you depressed, and hopefully I can overcome that. 90,000 hours on average is how, many, how much time most of us will spend at work in a lifetime. 90,000 hours hours. That's at least a third of your life that you're going to be spending at work. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But let's break these things down a little bit more because now I'm going to hit you with something because one of my great goals in life now is to equip and empower and encourage people in this, what I'm about to share with you. Did you know that most churchgoers, now I'm going to label you today as a churchgoer. You know why? You're in church, that's right, you're here with us today. Most churchgoers today doubt the significance of their work to God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought to yourself something like this as you sit in the cube that you're in or at your location where you are at work and go, wow, is what I'm doing really significant in the eyes of God? Does this really make a difference as far as God is concerned for things that are eternal and even things that are temporal? Is what I'm doing really worth it? Does it matter? Most churchgoers doubt the significance of their work to God. Did you know that 70% of Christians do not see how their work serves God's purposes? Now think about what you do for just a moment. You might even still be thinking, Mike, well, I'm one of those. I don't see how what I do on a daily basis serves God's purpose, purposes. 70% of Christians now do not see how what they do on a daily basis in their jobs, no matter what it may be, serves the purposes of God. And 78%, are you ready for this one? This will break Jeff's heart if Jeff doesn't know this about, uh, already. But 78% of Christians see their work as less important than the work of their pastor. 78% of Christians see the, uh, the importance of their work as being less important than that of their pastor. Now, I've been a pastor for many years. I've been a, uh, a chaplain. Or I've been a workplace missionary, whatever you want to call it. And that hurts my heart. That breaks my heart to know that there's so many people that think that what they do is less important than what I do. In fact, here's the number one way I can I, I tell you that people know this and they, and they believe this. So they'll, they'll ask me, Mike, will you pray for this and this and this for me? I'm like, well, sure, I'll do that. And then they'll say something to me like, well, we know it's because you have a direct line to God. You know what I tell them? I love to tell them two things. And I'm going to tell you these two things today too. If you ask me to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you. 
And when you say to me, Mike, it's because you have a direct line to God, I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, you're right. I do have a direct line to God. And number two, guess what? You have that same direct line to God that I have. You ever been to the airport and you've been waiting there in that line to check in your bags and all of a sudden those platinum sky mile members go up there or whatever they want to be called, the million mile, whatever, and they look at you and say, wait a minute, we're going to help him first. Why? Because he's got a card, he travels more, he's got all these miles, he's got all these perks and all these benefits and you have to wait. And all of a sudden another one comes up, they say, we'll get to you in just a moment and another one comes and he gets to get all of his stuff for free. You've seen those kind of lines before? You've been sitting and waiting in a restaurant Someone else got the call to head seating. You're sitting there. You watch them walk in the door and say, huh, they got 45 minutes to wait. And they go sit straight down. It's like, wait a minute. How'd that happen? You know, somehow they knew the way to figure it out. There is no system like that with God. There is no different line for the pastor that all of a sudden is a direct line that gets him to God first and before you and in a better way than you. You and I had that same direct line, but so many people, almost 80% of people, this breaks my heart. You do not see that your job is as important as that of your pastor or those of missionaries, and this is the way people feel. And Satan knows that we act out of how we feel. And so therefore, when that Sunday afternoon comes around on a weekly basis, or after a four-day holiday weekend, for that matter, you say, wow, I have to go back to work. I've got to go back to that place that I hate. I have to go back to that place that just drains me and places stress on me. How can this be any good? How can there be any importance to this? And how can it rank anywhere in the eternal purposes of God? I'm going to share a statement with you today. I'm writing uh, a book, and my wife's helped me kind of edit part of it so far. And, and this has become, the, to me, as, as she helped me turn some things around, this has been one of the number one statements uh, to me of what I'm writing about right now. And you're going to bristle at this, and you're going to want to argue with me, okay? But I hope I could change your mind today. And that is this. There is no higher calling on your life than where you are right now. It's as simple as that. There is no higher calling on your life than where you are right now. Now, I know already within a nanosecond, you're thinking of all the reasons to tell me, Mike, you cannot be that stupid. You cannot be that dumb, Mike. You're telling me that where I am right now, there's no higher calling than where I am right now. That's exactly what I'm telling you. And here's what I'm saying. Your calling may change one day. Your calling one day may take you to a different location. Your calling by God may take you to a different responsibility. Your calling one day may take you to a different kind of people, okay? But in the here and now, there is no higher calling for your life than where you are right now doing exactly what you are doing today. That's just the truth of the Scripture. Therefore, you have to believe some things about yourself, and that is who I am and where I am and why I'm there is all ordained by God on purpose for His purposes, now think about this for just a moment. If that's not true, God has wasted a lot of hours, 90,000 of which you're going to spend in those places in your lifetime. He's wasted a lot of locations because if it cannot happen just in the building and the walls of the church, then, not, then none of the rest of the world is sacred in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And, there, and, and if that's not true either, the only gifted people that can carry on the purposes of God are the pastors. It's only their talents. It's only their abilities that can get it done. And he's wasted all of your talents. So you see the difference in, in, in what this means depending on what you believe. If you do not believe that there's no higher calling for your life than where you are right now, God is wasting the place you are at. He's wasting your talents and skills. And God is messed up. He's going, wait a minute, I, I don't know what to do about this. Either that or God has placed you somewhere for a divine purpose, on purpose, 
But we have to believe these things. We have to change what we believe because it's not, uh, we're not going to be able to act until we believe in something. And so the church building is not the only sacred building out there. All the buildings, the, the loading docks, the sales floors, all the various places I go, they're as sacred to God as any other place. And the people that are in there, those who carry Christ with them, are as equally talented and gifted as me. And so therefore, the work and the impact and the influence that you can have in those places is as important as any pastor. And in fact, you're going to get to go to places and you're going to be in uh, locations that your pastor and other missionaries can never get to, but you can and you are the light of the world that God has ordained for that place, for that time. And if you're not letting your light shine there, then God's genius is not going to be able to work. But it will if we will believe these things, that there is no higher calling than where I am right now doing what I'm doing. It's the, it, the difference that that belief will make, if, if you begin to dwell on this and embrace it, will change the, the phrase that you say on Sunday afternoons, man, i got to go back to work tomorrow, to wow, I get to go back to work tomorrow. Wow, I get to go do what I'm doing at school tomorrow and be involved in these things. Let me ask you this. How would your life change if you believed this? How would your life change if you believed that there's no higher calling on your life than where you are right now? How would your life change if you believed that, that who I am in God and where I am in God and why I'm there is ordained by Him on purpose, for His purposes? How would your life change? How would your life change? Anybody ever been on a mission trip before? Raise your hands. Okay, some of you have gone on mission trips. How, how would your life change if you looked at every day of your life as the opportunity and the privilege of being on a mission trip right there? How would your life change if you embraced that new belief? Here's the better question. How would the lives of those around you change if you began to embrace that belief? How would the lives of those who are impacted you, by you and touched by you at every level of where you go during your day how would those lives be changed if you realize that God has specifically placed you and ordained in you the great purpose to be who you are? That is God's genius at work. Now, here's what I want to do today, and I want to, uh, I'm going to use the Scripture to help you understand that what I'm telling you is true. Really, just one verse is going to really, it's, it's, to me, it's the home run verse of today. But I'm going to share with you two parables they're going to help us understand this. And I'm going to give you an example. And the example is Joseph in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to open it, go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you don't, many of these verses are going to be on the screen, okay? And I'm going to tell you about two parables to begin with. Before we start to read that, these two parables that I'm going to share with you begin something like this. That this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, let me give you a clue on some of the parables of Jesus. When Jesus is about to tell a parable to teach a lesson, and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like, I'd really perk up if I were you. Because he's about to tell you what the kingdom of God is all about. He's about to give you a picture of what the kingdom of God is to him, God in the flesh on this earth. And so he's about to, we're about to read two stories, and these stories will help us understand that this is what God ordained as the kingdom of God. The first one, many folks understand it or call it the parable of the wheat and the tares, okay? And it's found in Matthew chapter 13, and beginning in verse 24, again, if you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen. Beginning in verse 24, this is what we read. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, there's our key words, okay? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. 
when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And so Jesus is telling us this parable of this story of this man who sows good seed into his field. And as he sows this good seed into his field, he goes home and he goes to sleep. While he's asleep, the enemy goes, you know what? I'm going to sabotage that field. I'm not going to go uproot those seeds. I'm not going to steal them. I'm not going to take them away. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go plant my own seed, bad seed, the weeds among them. And that's how I'm going to infiltrate and sabotage his field. That's what he just told us. Then it starts in verse 27 after that. It says, the owners and servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed into your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the weed and bring it into my barn. And what he tells his servants is this in this story, don't worry about trying to separate these two. Don't worry about trying to go gather one and go gather other one. Just let it go. And at harvest time, we'll figure that out, okay? So there's the parable that Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like this. A man who sows good seed into the field, okay? And then an enemy comes in the evening at a time where everyone is asleep, and he sows his bad seed into the field. Now, later on, after he tells another parable, Jesus leaves the crowd, and he's just with his disciples. And in that same chapter, beginning in verse, uh, well, in verse 36, that's where it says uh, that the disciples looked at him and said, would you explain to us that parable of the weeds? Would you explain to us a little bit more about what that means? And here it comes. This is so wonderful. You need to just memorize the, these two verses, possibly, or maybe this one section of this one verse. It's going to bless your socks off. Jesus begins to explain in verse 37, it says, He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. Okay? In the parable, he's saying the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. And then he says this, the field is the world, and here it is, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Listen to that. I mean, we don't have to read anymore. I'm I'm not going to miss anything by not reading the rest of the explanation, but right there he says, the field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The one in the story that Jesus tells us, he says, the one who is sowing the seed is God himself. God himself is sowing the seed. And guess who the seed is? Raise your hand. You are. You are the seed because the field is what? The field is the world. And so when you start to wonder and you think, man, Mike just told me that there's no higher calling on my life than where I am right now. Think about this. You might feel like you're on the backside of nowhere. You might feel like you're in the most obscure place. And you might feel like the things that you have to do are not only the most mundane, but the most ridiculous and they're the most burdensome. But listen to me. If you, if, this is why I said this is a game changer. If you can believe these things, all of a sudden you realize God has placed me here. God is the one, as he sowed his seed, he's the one that put me right here. You know why? Because Mike Fortenberry can't get to where you are. You know why? God put you here because Jeff Murphy cannot get to where you are. And as God has called us the light of the world, his genius is at work. See, right now, if we're called the light of the world, I've used this analogy before, all the light of the world is closed up in this room, right? 
We are the light of the world. That's what God has told, called us to be. But you know what? In that, in that analogy, the light's not shining until we walk out that door, is it? And when we walk out that door, all of a sudden, we infiltrate the field, which is the world, and we go into places everywhere that missionaries and pastors and evangelists never can get to, but you can. You can. And when you begin to embrace the fact that there's no higher calling on your life than where you are right now, doing what you're doing right now, you have the ability to impact people's lives and to touch people that nobody else can get to if you would only believe that. So many times we wake up on that Monday morning, whether it's after Christmas, after the holidays, and we're trying to shake the cobwebs that all come with that and shake a few of those pounds. I ate like a madman. You know, I, I'm still eating like a madman as a result. You, how, do you, how do you shake that? You shake it by going, you know what? I have another opportunity as God has sown me into this field called the world, into this place where I am. And let me share with you another parable real quickly. It's, it's, uh, it's in the book of Mark. It's a four-verse parable. It's a very short one. And again, it's going to stick with this same theme of being a sower. You say, well, Mike, how do I do this then? I mean, if, if I'm supposed to believe that where I am is all ordained by God on purpose for His purposes and that uh, He's not going to waste my talents, He's not going to waste my abilities and gifts, how do I do this? Well, I love this parable because it's very, very simple. I love simple. How many of y'all like simple? The older I get, the more I want to get rid of complicated, okay? And God has made everything simple. Not necessarily easy. There's a difference, but God has made it simple. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, this is what we read again. He also said, this is Jesus, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So perk up. He's telling us once again, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and it grows though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. You know what a, a, a sower does? And God, Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man who sows seed in his field. Then he goes home and he goes to bed. He goes home and goes to sleep because the Bible tells us there whether he sleeps or gets up, the, the, the seed grows, and as he wakes up, he goes out there and looks at it and says, wow, how did that happen? You know what? God did that. Our job is just to sow seed. Our job is to sow seed of encouragement. Our job is to sow seed of hope. Our job is to sow seed of our testimony of a transformed life of, of what God has done in, in us and changed us and made us new as we have found our way back to God, and God has renewed us and made us his child, and what he can do, what he has done for us, he can do for others. You see, our, our, our sowing seed is to care for people, to build relationships with people, to encourage, to empower, and to, uh, to give our testimony, to build those relationships, and to care for them, and to be that light. It's really very simple things. Give the person who is downcast a smile. Give them a word of hope. Offer them the opportunity to pray. Offer them the opportunity to know who Jesus is because of what he's done in your life. These things are very simple. You don't have to be trained very thoroughly at all to accomplish these things. It's just sowing seed. And guess what you do then? You go home and go to bed. I like that part. You go home and go to sleep. And then when you wake up, you go back. The next day you say, wow, look at that changed life. Ed is different. How'd that happen? Well, God did it. You look back there and say, wow, Elliot is a different person. How did that happen? I don't know. All I know is, is God has done a work in his life. And so you see where God has placed us as he has sown his seeds into the field, which is the world, which is us and all the locations we are. 
All we have to do is be, be a very simple witness to those around us. You see, to me, for today, this is the cure for what we've called today the holiday hangover. This is the cure for the every single week of our life, the weekend hangover, where we go, wow, I've got to go back to work. How can this change? How can I take the location where I am and find worth in it and find purpose in it? Well, when you begin to embrace the fact that God has sown you there for a great purpose and believe that until things change, I am experiencing God's highest calling on my life today, that is the cure that you're looking for because you're looking for purpose. Now, some of you might still be saying, well, Mike, I still, you don't get it. You don't know where I work. You don't know what I have to deal with. You don't know what I have to do. It's a difficult place where I am. Well, I may not know. You're exactly right. You may need to give me all the details about that so that I can understand a little bit more of the situation that you uh, are in and the circumstances that surround you. But in light of that, let me share with you a quick example today of someone who I believe can relate to you. And as you look at the witness of their life, maybe it will encourage you in where you are. How many of you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? As a 17-year-old young man, Joseph had a couple of dreams, okay? And he had a bunch of brothers, right? Anybody got brothers in the house today? I have two brothers, okay? And, uh, and I understand this, especially from the youngest, okay? Because Joseph was the youngest, and so in these two dreams, he's basically telling his brothers, hey, check this out. I had this dream of, of wheat stalks and whatnot, and mine rose up, and y'all's bit down in front of me. Y'all's kneeled down in front of me. And his brothers are like, are you telling me that we're going to have to bow before you? And Joseph's like, that's what I'm saying, man. You're going to have to bow in front of me one day. If you got brothers, you know what happened next, okay? In my house, you got punched. Something happens, you know, you know you're, you're like, okay, you think I'm going to bow down to you. Let me go ahead and show you what that looks like now as we, as we get it on, okay? He did this twice to them, okay? And the second time, he even told his dad. Now, we don't know this. The Bible doesn't say. But, you know, Joseph may have been a little full of himself. He may have been a little arrogant because his dad even rebuked him for it, okay? And so Joseph may have been kind of riding that one a little bit longer than he should have, okay? But regardless of that, Joseph had two dreams where God had revealed to him that he is going to elevate Joseph to a place of leadership and authority where others would bow down to him. Well, later on in the story of Joseph, his dad tells him, says, go check on your brothers, okay? They're out in the field and bring me back a report. Joseph goes out to them, and he's wearing this great coat, you know, the coat of many colors that uh, you read about in, 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 as kids in Sunday school and in church and in my kids and all that. And all the brothers are looking at him, and they see him coming, and they really hate him. They're like, hey, here he comes. Now's our chance. Let's kill him. To which one of them says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's think about this for a moment. They get him there. They strip him of his coat. They throw him in the cistern. They basically throw him in a well, and they say, now let's decide what to do with him, okay? They, some still want to kill him. One of them says, no, what, we can't, we're not going to get anywhere by killing him. Why don't we sell him? Here comes some slave traders. Why don't we sell him and make some money off of him, okay? Now, we never went this far as brothers, so we never sold one another to somebody else, okay? We may have thought about it and wanted to make some money if we could, and that's exactly what they did. Then they dip his coat in blood. They tell their dad that a, a wild animal uh, ate him and that Joseph is no more. His dad mourns, and all the while, Joseph is now being carted off to Egypt, and he is sold as a slave in Egypt. Now, let's re 
let's uh, recap for just a moment. God gave him a dream, the same dream, two different ways and two different times. I am going to elevate you to a place of leadership and authority and of, uh, and of a great position that you need. In other words, when we go back to that statement, there's no higher calling on your life than where you are right now. You might even argue and say, well, wait a minute, Joseph's highest calling was where he was going to be. Yeah, but in the moment, he is still experiencing the highest calling he could ever have right where he was because God had a lot of work to do to get him there, okay? And so, yes, it will change. Yes, it will evolve, so to speak. But at that moment, God, God was still giving his best to Joseph, and Joseph was experiencing the best from God. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, uh, in, in, in the story, is uh, the captain of the guard. He is high up in Pharaoh's army. And in Potiphar's house, this is where Joseph uh, begins his work as a slave, now, in verse 2, it's not going to be on the screen. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered and lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Notice these verses that tell us a little bit about Joseph as he's working in a God-forsaken place, a place that nobody wants to be, doing things he does not want to do with the people that he does not uh, associate with because they're not his own people. In verse 3, it says this, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all, of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, and with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. And then an extra little word here. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Up to that point, I could relate to Joseph. I can't relate to him anymore. Okay. Anyway, Joseph is in this place that hopefully, as I make this analogy with you, you can understand that he is going, wow, I am in a God-forsaken place doing a God-forsaken task. There's no way I can be experiencing God's best for my life right now. But God's hand was still on him. God's favor was still on him, okay? And everything he did prospered. And in fact, everything prospered so much that Potiphar said, you know what, he's in charge of everything. Well, Potiphar leaves on a business trip, and Potiphar's wife notices that he is well-built and handsome, and she says, I want him. But Joseph says, no. How can I sin against God and do that? I, nothing has been withheld from me by my master except for you. You are his wife. Well, she connives. She goes around, and she tries to literally grab him one day. And as she does, he runs, but he leaves his coat with her. And all of a sudden, uh, Joseph is lied about. Potiphar comes back home. She tells him, hey, he wanted to make sport of me. Here's his coat. He left it behind when I screamed for help. And this is what happened. And so when Potiphar comes home and he hears this, the story continues in verse number 20. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Now, no longer is he just a slave in his house. He's now put in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all these held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, a God-forsaken place, 
with a God-forsaken task, wondering, has God left me, and is there any importance and significance to what I am doing? Joseph can relate to you. Joseph probably is the poster child for what we're talking about, more so than you'll ever be, okay? More so than I'll ever dream of being myself. But here's something I know of Joseph. He had to be faithful. There's no way he could have attained the highest position in Potiphar's house or the highest position in the prison other than being faithful in what he's doing and embracing the fact that there's no higher calling on my life than where I am right now, and I'm going to do all I can to be faithful to God. Now, as time moves on, the Pharaoh has a couple of dreams himself. Joseph comes and interprets those dreams and says, you're going to have seven years of plenty, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, thank you for interpreting my dream. You are now in charge. You're in charge. You don't answer to anyone here in Egypt but me, the Pharaoh, and you have charge of all these things. For seven years, you've got to collect it all so that in the seven years of famine, we can disperse it all. And guess who had to come to Joseph in the seven years of famine and bow in front of him and ask for food? His brothers, okay? Now, we don't have time to go into all that. Let me give you three basic statements that I hope you can latch on today about this subject in the story of Joseph. Number one, God will take your location and develop your capacity. It does not matter where you are. It does not matter what you're doing. But God will take your location and He will develop your capacity. In other words, He will broaden your horizons. He will expand your territory. He will help you gain influence. He will help you gain impact, okay, for the things of God and the things of eternal consequence. God will take that location that you look at so often as being a God-forsaken place, and He'll use it, and He will develop your capacity, and He will grow His work for His glory, for His honor, and for eternal purposes. You have to believe that. The second statement I'd give you today is, is, is this. God will take your humility and he will develop your character. You see, I still believe Joseph had a lot of character issues that he had to develop and he had to be humbled in a way in a place that he would have never chosen to be and that is Potiphar's house and the prison where he was thrown. But he'll take those places where we are humbled and in our humility, he will take our character and shape it in such a way where when you speak of the things of God and when you are the light that God has called you to be, in those places that you don't really like to be, that those people will hear you. They will listen because your character will demonstrate who you are in your humility. Not only will he take your location and develop your capacity, he'll take your humility and develop your character, but he will take the very work that you do, number three, and develop your credibility. The, the simple work that you do, the mundane that you do, when you do it and you do it well, your credibility grows. And these are all things that I wish I had another hour and another week to share with you about Joseph because I, I believe seriously that this is what brought Joseph the credibility that he had because nothing was withheld from him in Potiphar's house. Nothing was kept from him that he was in charge of. The warden paid no attention, the Bible says, to everything Joseph did because he knew it would be done to the best that could ever be dreamed of to be uh, done by anybody. And I believe it's because Joseph embraced the fact that there was no higher calling on his life than where he was at that time. Let me ask you these questions one more time. How would your life change if you began to believe these things? How would your life change? i tell you one way it would change. You would begin to see God in places that you never dreamed you'd see Him. 
You'd begin to experience him in ways that you never thought you'd experience. In what was once thought of as a God-forsaken place with a God-forsaken task at hand. And God will take your mind and your heart and he'll reshape it in ways that you never dreamed of it being reshaped. But the greater question really is this, is how would the lives of those around you change if you began to believe this? In 2013, 32,400 missionaries were sent to this country. In 2013, 32,400 missionaries were sent to the United States of America. You know where that ranks the United States of America in the world as far as countries receiving missionaries? Number one. The rest of the world looks at our country, the place that we call home, as needing help. The rest of the world is looking at our country saying they need hope. The rest of the world is looking at our country and saying they need Jesus. And what I'm looking at today, when I think of 32,400 missionaries coming here from other places around the world, I'm looking at a bunch of missionaries right now literally that will go to places that no pastor and missionary can get to except for you. If you would but embrace that there's no higher calling on your life than where you are right now and that who you are, where you are, and why you are there is ordained by God on purpose for his purposes. You want to cure your holiday hangover and your every weekend hangover by Sunday night? Embrace that belief. It will change how you start your Mondays out. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you today for the fact that you have not wasted one talent or gift in this room. And our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you have not forsaken any place on this earth and that no place on this earth is labeled more sacred than the other, but that every location that we inhabit during this coming week is all sacred to you because there you have placed your light. There you have sown your seed into the field that we know is the world. And there are times, Lord, I know it's going to feel God forsaken to us. And Lord, there are times that I know it's going to feel like what we are doing, there can be no way it has eternal impact. But Lord, it has to. Because you've said that where you will send us, there will be your witness. There will be your witness. And Lord, we are those witnesses. Lord, thank you today for the fact that we are experiencing at this very moment your very best for our lives. Thank you, Father, today for the fact that who I am and where I am and why I am there has all been ordained by you and that you're going to accomplish your purposes if I would but believe that and act on it. Lord, that's my prayer for everyone in this room today, that they would embrace it believe it, and act upon it. It may not feel like the best. It may not even look like the best. It may not smell like the best. But Lord, you've sown us there, and we can be that witness. Thank you for those words of encouragement from your word today. Thank you for the person of Joseph that you've given to us as a great example to look at and believe that this can be true even for us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for being our God, our Savior, and our friend, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and ask our host teams to come forward. We're going to...
uh, moving to an offering time uh, to close out our service, and Jed and the team are going to lead us in one final song. If you've come in here today as a guest to my church, you know, uh, the great purpose of my church is to help people find their way back to God. And I hope today that uh, maybe if you've been searching for God, you've been searching for that relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, that today you would consider making Him the leader and forgiver of your life. And that in that, on that way back to God, if I can help you, if anybody in this room can help you, that you would reach out to us and say, hey, would you pray for me? Or can I tell you my story? On my way back to God, we'd love to help you do that. In fact, today, if you'd like to even let us know, hey, through this message, through this time together today, I've made Jesus the leader and forgiver of my life. Would you put that on your Connect card and put it in the bucket? Maybe or take it to the, uh, the desk out here. We'd love to know that that's what you have done. And if you wonder who my church is, that's what we want to be. We want to be that seed that God has placed in, in his field, in the world every day so that we can be the light that God's called us to be. And so we would ask you to join us in that too if you have found your way back to God today and will place your faith in Jesus Christ as the leader and forgiver of your life. Well, we'll go ahead and stand. I'll pray for the offering, and then we're going to sing and let Jed lead us. Lord, thank you again for today. Thank you for this offering we're about to receive. And Lord, I thank you for what's going to happen as we leave this place today as a result of believing the truth of who you are in our lives and where you've put us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.